Our reading is found in the book of Ezra, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, and then chapter 6, verses 1 to 16. Now Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozanai, and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, What are the names of those who are constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. Moving to chapter 6. Verses 1 to 16. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ekbatana, in the province of Media, and this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide, with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozanai, and you, other officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of Trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine and olive oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. 
Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king of people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple of Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shithar, Bozanai, and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished rebuilding the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Thanks very much, Mark. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Father, we give you thanks again that you are a a speaking God, and as you speak through your word by your spirit this morning, please help us not only listen, help us to be doers of your word also, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Well, over the last uh, few weeks... Uh, we've seen God's heart for restoration. If you remember back in Ezra chapter 1 and 2, we witnessed the return, the coming back of God's people from Babylon. God is committed to restoring his people, to bringing his people home. And then in Ezra chapter 3 and 4, we witnessed, we saw the beginning of this rebuilding program. God's people return in order to rebuild what was lost. And initially things begin pretty well. The first thing they did, if you remember, was to prioritize the rebuilding of the altar. Our relationship with the Lord comes before anything else. But when the altar was rebuilt, then they gave themselves to the rebuilding work of the temple. And so this stage in the the rebuilding program, there's a real sense of excitement. The people are committed to their work and the progress is clear for all to see. But as the work continues to advance, so does the opposition. And chapter 4, we saw this last week, a chapter given over entirely to exposing the reality of that opposition that comes the way of those who labor for the Lord. And of course, it's no different today. As we give ourselves to the work of the Lord in this place, as, as we too get excited about what the Lord is doing, as we, as we see the gospel advance, as we see gospel progress, We too should expect opposition. Satan will do whatever he can to weaken the hands of God's workforce. And sadly, at times, we saw this last week, the opposition is effective. You remember where we left off? Verse 24 of chapter 4. Thus, i.e. because of the opposition, thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. That is until Ezra chapter 5 
verse 1, when once again God moves the hearts of his people, and despite the opposition, God's people go back to work. See, in chapter 4, the opposition is effective. In chapter 5, oh no, it isn't. A little bit like the panto, isn't it? Chapter 4, oh yes, it is. Chapter 5, oh no, it isn't. Because ultimately the word of the Lord will triumph against all opposition. And that brings us to our first point of three this morning. It is the work, or it is the word, sorry, of the Lord that restores and renews. Have a look down at uh, verse 1, chapter 5. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And the result of that preaching, verse 2, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedach, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. The date is now 520 B.C. Seventeen years have passed since they finished rebuilding the altar. Seventeen years since the, the foundation slab of the temple had been laid. Seventeen years of inactivity. That is until Haggai and Zechariah appear on the screen and God once again speaks through his prophets to his people. And the message that they brought to the people was actually a pretty simple one. You can see some of it on the screen there. Haggai chapter 1 verse 13. This is part of the message that Haggai the prophet spoke to the people of God at this time. This is what it says. Then Haggai the Lord's messenger gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. I am with you, declares the Lord. That's all they needed to hear. In the face of relentless opposition, they just needed to know that the Lord was with them. And as the message is preached, so God once again moves the hearts of his people by his spirit. He stirs the spirits of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the leaders that he had put in place. And he stirs the, the spirit of the whole remnant of God's people. And together they pick up their tools, whatever their tools were in this rebuilding work, different roles, different jobs. They pick them up and they go back to work for the Lord. Do you see the point that the author is making? The ministry of the word of the Lord leads to the work of the Lord. Can you see that in the text as the word is preached? The ministry of the word of the Lord leads to the work of the Lord. God's people were discouraged and afraid. Their tools had been hung up in the shed for 17 years. Nothing had happened. Not a brick had been laid. And then God speaks. And by the grace of God... People respond. It's the preacher's dream, isn't it? The word of God is held out and the people of God respond in joyful obedience. And that's the way it was for the next five years. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. This is five years on now. So the elders of the Jews continue to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus 
Darius and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia, the temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. It's now March the 12th, 515 BC, and after five years of fruitful ministry, the temple is now complete. But of course, it wouldn't have happened, would it? Without the intervention of God's word. Without the intervention of these two prophets who spoke the word of God to the people of God. You see, in Ezra's day, without the word of the Lord, the temple would have been nothing more than a foundation slab and a pile of bricks. And in our day, the church, without the word of the Lord, will be nothing more than an empty shell. The ministry of God's word is absolutely crucial to the life of the church in every single dimension of it. Remember going as a lad to Blackpool to see the illuminations. Had to pick up your bit of Blackpool rock, didn't you? Get your stick. And the thing you used to love about the rock is wherever you snap it, says the same thing all the way through, doesn't it? Blackpool rock. All the way through. Wherever you snap it, you see exactly the same thing. Here's the deal. If you snap any ministry of this church in half, you will see Bible truth written all over it, all the way through. Bible truth, the word of the Lord. Any home group you visit, the Bible will be open and central. Any youth group or activity you go to, the Bible will be open and central. Any gathering here on a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, the Bible will be open and central because the word of God is powerful to restore us. And send us back to work with a renewed commitment to build and live our lives for the glory of God and his kingdom and not our own. It is the word of the Lord that restores and renews. And that is why we need to pray. We need to pray for the preaching of God's word in this place. Because through it, God will build something beautiful with this people. A church. That will be for the display of his glory. A church to which the nations will come flocking because they can see something of the majesty, the goodness, the grace, the kindness and the glory of God in the people of God. They'll see Jesus in his church. But for that to happen, the ministry of God's word must be ongoing, right? Haggai and Zechariah ministered for all of those five years. And you see that again in verse 2, look. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Through the entire building project, they were there with them. Now, I don't think that means that they headed off to the local DIY store and bought a, a shovel and joined the physical building party. It meant that they supported the people of God. They helped the people of God by continuing to preach to the people of God. They held out the word of truth as they sought to encourage the Lord's people to do the Lord's work. And I know that as leaders in this church and pastors particularly, we value your prayers greatly in this area. That the word of God would be faithfully taught whenever the people of God gather. Firstly, it is the word of the Lord that restores and renews. Secondly, it is the hand of the Lord that protects and provides. Have a look back at chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. This is now returning back five years. Temple's not complete. We're going back. Okay, so the rebuilding work has commenced. And this is what we read in verse 3 and 4. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bosani and their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? 
They also asked, what are the names of those who are constructing this building? You see, as the people of God go back to work, the the progress is rapid. You can see that in verse 8. Stuff is happening. Imagine all the materials, the logs coming from Lebanon and Joppa and all the, all the materials needed to rebuild are being delivered and it's a, it's a hive of activity around Jerusalem. And it attracts the attention of this guy called Tatanai, who was a governor in the service of King Darius. And immediately things begin to look a little bit more ominous, don't they? As the history books tell us, Darius was a brutal leader had a particular fondness for impaling people. According to one source, he impaled 3,000 people on one day for rebelling against him. And so when Tatanai comes sniffing around asking questions, you wouldn't want your name on that list, would you? You wouldn't want your name going back to Persia, to King Darius, with the potential that this temple has been built in opposition to you, King Darius. You wouldn't want that going back. To him, but Tatanai, being the professional he was, he does his research. He collects all the information that he needs and he writes this letter to Darius with a full account of what is happening in Jerusalem. Have a look down from verse 6 and we're going to hear a little section of this letter read to us now, verse 6 of chapter 5. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shathar Bozanai and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? We also asked them their names so that they, so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our ancestors answered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor, and he told him, take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. Thanks, Mark. And let me just read you verse 17 as well. This is how, the, this is how Tatanai concludes his letter. Now, if it pleases the king, 
Let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. And so the archives are checked and thankfully the the royal filing system is in order because a scroll is found containing the decree of Cyrus stating clearly that God's people can return in order to rebuild the temple. And so Darius reports back to Tatanai to confirm this in writing. But in addition to that, he adds his new own legislation. And this is where we see the hand, the sovereign hand of God at work, protecting and providing for his people. Have a look at verse 7 of chapter 6. Straight to the point is Darius. Tatanai, stay away. Royal protection is granted. Tatanai, stay away. Let the people get on with building their temple. But then things get even better in verse 8. Not only does Darius tell them not to interfere, but he covers the building fees from his own pocket. The royal treasury picks up the bill. Darius will himself provide every penny that is needed to complete the building of the temple. And if that were not enough, things get even better for God's people in verse 11. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from the house and they're to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. There is a royal warning, if ever I heard one. Whoever listens to this decree, Darius says to Tatanai, not just you, make sure every single person knows, do not interfere with these people. As they go back to building their temple. Because if you do, it will not end well for you. It's no surprise, is it, that Tatanai does what he's told. Verse 13, I'd do what I was told. Then because of the decree, King Darius had sent Tatanai, governor of the trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bosnai, and their associates, carried it out with diligence. And the result, verse 14, so the elders of the Jews continue to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. Do you see the hand of God's providence and protection throughout? Just as God moved the heart of King Cyrus, so now he moves the heart of King Darius. And as we'll see later in the story, he also moves the heart of King Artaxerxes. Not for the first time in the book of Ezra, and not for the last time, we see our gracious God overseeing and ordering every single detail of life for the sake of his kingdom and glory. And it's a truth that's summarized so beautifully for us back in chapter 5, Verse 5, but the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. You see, it wasn't only Tatanai watching over events in Jerusalem. More importantly, the Lord was watching over the affairs of his people. He was watching over with a fatherly eye and with a gracious touch. And as he does, he provides for them and he protects them. And it's no different today. If we commit ourselves to the work of the Lord, the hand of the Lord is protecting and providing for every single need as we give ourselves to him. 
He'll give us everything we need as we read in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the Lord God is on our side, what opposition can stand in the way of what he is doing? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It is the hand of the Lord, the sovereign hand of God, that protects and provides. Firstly, the word of the Lord restores and renews. Secondly, the hand of the Lord protects and provides. And thirdly, the joy of the Lord fills and overflows. Have a look at verse 15 and 16. Chapter 6, And the temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Seventy years after the first temple was destroyed and burnt to the ground at the hands of the Babylonians, the new temple is complete. And once again, God's people are gathering for worship. It is a work of restoration that brings great joy to the people of God. And you can see that joy permeate the rest of the chapter. Verse 19, the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. Verse 22, for seven days, they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy. Now, there's no doubt that some of that joy is a sense of relief in finishing an important project. I think you all know what that relief feels like when you you complete something well that you've been given to do. I remember finishing my dissertation at uni after a couple of months with your head in the same place, thinking about the same thing for two months, and you finish off your references, you bind it, and you hand it in, and you flop down on your armchair, and there's this wonderful sense of relief and joy at completing something well but the joy of God's people here goes way deeper than just finishing a project have a look again verse 22 for seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy the people celebrate with joy because the Lord filled them with joy God alone is the source. We sang in our opening hymn, the fount of every blessing, the source of every joy given experience in life. And that's exactly what we see, isn't it, in the book of Ezra? A God who is committed to bringing people back to himself, broken things, broken people, broken lives. God restores and he makes things new. The people are full of joy because they are home with the Lord. And they are now doing what they were created to do and redeemed to do, which is to give him the praise and the worship. And then you also probably notice the the repeated focus on the Passover feast, the joy in remembering, where we are reminded of the saving character of God. Verse 19 and 20. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves And we're all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. See, whenever the Passover is celebrated in Scripture, it marks a significant moment in God's salvation story. When the people left Egypt, they celebrated the Passover. When the people left Mount Sinai, when God had given them the law, he spoke to his people, they celebrated the Passover. 
when they crossed the River Jordan and settled in the God-given promised land, they celebrated the Passover. When God in his kindness brings these exiles home and they rebuild the temple, they celebrated the Passover. And of course, on the night when the Lord Jesus was betrayed, they celebrated the Passover. The night before Jesus Christ went to the cross with the sin of mankind laid to his shoulders to make full atonement for sin. You see, the Passover is a feast. It is a joyful celebration that points us forward to the final and finished work of the Lord Jesus. All joy is found in Jesus. All roads that lead to Jesus will find genuine joy. Any joy you experience in life finds its source in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you get to know him in that way, when you know the saving work of God that we see in Jesus only through the cross, your hearts won't just be full with joy. They'll be full to overflowing to such an extent that the people around us will taste and see that the Lord is good. One of my favorite New Testament moments is in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John are dragged before the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling council. This is what we read. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or him? You be the judges. As for you, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter says, I can't help it. I cannot suppress the joy that resides in my heart to know what Christ has done for me and what that means for all eternity. You can tell me to stop. I cannot. I cannot suppress it. The joy in Jesus is just too great and it will flow out into every single dimension of life. I wonder what that looks like in your lives. Is the joy of Jesus visible? When we gather on a Sunday, as we listen to the word of the living God, is there joy in your hearts? Is it a joy that is written across your faces that Jesus died for you? And then as we head out into the week ahead, I wonder, does that joy spill out into our conversations with others? Will other people in our lives taste and see that the Lord is good because there is the joy of Jesus in your heart? And it cannot stay there. It's got to go out because the joy is too great. Rejoice in the Lord always, says the Apostle Paul. I say it again, rejoice. Why? Because the word of the Lord restores and renews. The word of God is powerful to bring restoration, transformation and glorification. The hand of the Lord protects and provides. Our gracious God sovereignly oversees every detail of life and he will protect and provide and give his people what they need when they commit to his kingdom building work. And then the joy of the Lord fills. And it doesn't just fill. It fills to overflowing into the lives of others so that they too may taste what you have tasted if you know Jesus, that he is good and his love endures forever when you take a moment now to rejoice on some of those things in your own heart let them smile let them make you smile in your heart and on your face um, and then we'll, we'll take a minute to do that and then we're going to sing a couple of songs uh, of praise together as we rejoice together 
uh, corporally. Let's do that for a few minutes now.